welcome to the podcast of the Vine Church in Fullerton, California. For more information, visit thevineoc.com. Good morning. I hope you had a great Christmas. Has it ever struck you just how odd Christmas is? I mean, during these past few weeks, we and millions, even billions of people around the world have been talking and thinking and even singing about someone who was a peasant who lived in the backwaters of the Middle East 2,000 years ago. How is this possible? It's been put like this. Here was a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village, worked as a carpenter until he was 30, and then for three and a half years was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book, never went to college, never owned a home, never had a family, never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born, never did one of the things that we usually attribute to greatness. He had no credentials but himself. And while he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him, His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies, went through the mockery of a trial, and then was hung upon a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. And when he was dead, he was taken down from that cross and placed in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone, and today he's the centerpiece of the human race, the leader of the column of progress. And I stand far within the mark when I say that all of the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever been built and sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, and all the kings that have ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as has that one solitary life. We acknowledge this pretty much every day as we write the date. His birth is is the dividing line of history, B.C., before Christ, A.D., the Latin words, Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? There is really no more important question Given his impact and importance, there is no more important question for us to try to ask and seek to answer. And we could spend, of course, our lives, and we really should be spending our lives trying to understand who this Jesus is. One of the things that I love about Dallas Willard, who is somebody that Pastor Michael likes to talk about, he was a great philosopher at at, uh, USC, But one of the things that is so striking about him is that he was all about pointing to Jesus and trying to understand Jesus and trying to to live out the Jesus life. And I aspire to that as well in whatever way I can. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is to look at a biblical phrase, a phrase from the Bible that does about as good a job as any in answering the question, who is Jesus? It's a, it's a familiar phrase from Christmas, and that is God with us. 
one of Jesus' biographers, Matthew, uh, brings this up when he describes Jesus' birth in Matthew 1, 22 and 23, which reads, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, that would be Isaiah, quote, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, end quote. And Matthew adds, which means God with us. God with us. Now, I think if we take these words seriously, we can begin to grasp who Jesus is and why he is easily the most influential person who has ever lived. Our gospel reading this morning is from another biography of Jesus in the Bible. There are four biographies of Jesus, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them gospels from a word that means good news. Now, unlike the other three accounts, John doesn't begin by recording the history of Jesus' birth or his early ministry. Instead, he pulls the telescope all the way back and starts by situating Jesus in the context of cosmic history before time itself. And these first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, which we was our gospel reading this morning, are sometimes called the prologue or John's prologue. It's a very influential passage of scripture full of all kinds of philosophical and theological importance. A friend of mine wrote his doctoral dissertation uh, on just these 18 verses. So in the four hours that I, I mean, no, I don't quite have that. Excuse me. I'm just going to focus on one verse this morning, and we won't even be able to talk about all of it, and that is verse 14, John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, Jesus is God with us. Now, I'd like to point out three things that we see in this verse uh, about this idea that God, Jesus is God with us. This verse tells us that Jesus is God, that Jesus is human, and that Jesus is with us. Jesus is God with us. And there are three key terms that I'll highlight as well. So first of all, Jesus is God. And the key term here is the very first word, word. What does it mean for John to use the term word to describe Jesus? Well, as you can imagine, there's a whole lot going on here, which is why you can write a doctoral dissertation on this passage. Uh, I'll just point out one thing here, and that is that to, to use the term word uh, carries, it, it carries with it the idea of communication, of revealing, of making something known. And that is a major theme throughout this section of scripture, that Jesus communicates God. He makes God known. Now, to make sense out of what John is saying here, we need to go back to the very beginning of this passage, because that's where he introduces the idea of word. So John 1, 1 through 5 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. 
Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now notice that John says explicitly that the Word was God. He also says that the Word was with God. So what's going on there? Well, here we have a glimmer of what Christians would eventually call the doctrine or teaching of the Trinity. The idea that there is one God who exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, John makes it clear in what follows that when he refers to the Word of God here, he's talking about God the Son. So, back to verse 14. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word who became flesh is obviously God the Son. And then in the the final verse in this section, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Notice the emphasis on communicating, making known here. So, uh, there's no question that by using the term word, John is referring to God the Son, who is in fact God, and that that is who Jesus is. So whatever else we want to say about Jesus being the Word, it's clear that he is the Word, and the Word is God. So since Jesus is the Word, Jesus is God. Okay, well now if Jesus is God, then that certainly sets him apart from other people and would begin to explain why he's had the impact he has. He's no ordinary man. He's the creator of the universe. Now, you might think, well, what's the big deal about that? I mean, isn't that basically what Buddhism says about Buddha and Islam says about Muhammad? You know, aren't all major world leaders basically thought to be, you know, manifestations of God or God in, in some sense? Actually, no. Uh, this is utterly unique in human history to have a sane human individual claiming to be and believed to be God himself. Religion scholar, comparative religion scholar, E.O. James of the University of London uh, has written a book uh, uh, comparing and contrasting Christianity with other religions, and he writes this, The Godhead attributed to the founder of Christianity, alike in the New Testament and by the Church, renders it unique in the history of religion. Nowhere else had it ever been claimed that a historical founder of any religion was the one and only supreme deity. Okay, well, so Jesus is radically unique. Um, He's God, so what? What difference does that make to me? Well, all the difference in the world. Think about it. If Jesus is God, then we know what God is like. God is like Jesus. 
we don't have to spend our whole lives tracking down everything that anybody has ever said about God in, in order to try to evaluate it and so on. We have a supreme test case here. We have the clearest possible test case, a standard. Uh, and that standard is, in fact, compelling. If Jesus is God, then we know what God is like. And that's a pretty compelling picture of what God is like. The controversial British writer Anthony Burgess, who wrote A Clockwork Orange, certainly not a Christian in any conventional sense at least, remarked that from his perspective, the man Jesus with no coherent philosophy to deliver, full of ironic parables, wit, compassion, totally, he says in parentheses, which was and is rare, without fear of women, very human, sometimes frightening, remains to say the least of it unique. And then he concludes, if God is like Jesus, God is worth believing in. If God is like Jesus, God is worth believing in. So if Jesus is God, then we know what God is like. And by the way, notice how John describes the kind of God Jesus is here in verses 1 through 5. He's the creator of everything else that exists. He's the source of life. He's the source of light or truth. He's, in, in other words, what he's saying about Jesus is he's the real thing kind of God, you know, the true God, the creator sort of God, not the kind of American um, made-up pet rock kind of God that that we, we invent in order to um, endorse our own preferences or prejudices. You often hear people say, well, the God I believe in wouldn't do that or, or something. Well, um, the God, uh, you know, we don't make up God. We, we don't have that privilege. We don't make the true God. We may, might make a pet rock sort of God, but we don't make the true God. He made us. And that's the sort of God, that's the God, in fact, the true God, that John is saying Jesus is. Jesus is truly, fully God, the real God. So that's the first point. Second point, Jesus is not only God, Jesus is human. And the key term here is flesh. The word became flesh, it says in verse 14. Now, this is where we get the term incarnation. It's from the Latin word for flesh. So, incarnate means infleshed. And here, the idea of the word as a kind of communication really becomes important. To say that the word became flesh takes that communication of what God is like to a whole new level. Robert Oppenheimer said, if you want to communicate an idea wrap it in a person. God is the ultimate communicator. When he wanted to communicate himself fully, he wrapped himself in the person of Jesus. He became a human being to show us tangibly who he is. Jesus is God with skin. He took on human nature, body, soul, Spirit. He became truly and fully human. So Jesus is not just 
truly, fully God. He is also truly, fully human. Now, we've seen that the fact that Jesus is God means we know what God is like. But the fact that Jesus is human also means that we know what being human is like. That is, what it is to be a complete human. Every human person that we have ever known is broken, marred, polluted by sin. We don't we don't function as humans the way we were designed to. We have warped views of, of what it means to be human. We have warped views of what it means to flourish as a human being. In other words, we're sinful, as the Bible teaches. Jesus is the only completely, perfectly human person that we can know. He is the model of what it means to be human. He's a model of what a good human being is. He's the model of what true human flourishing is all about. And knowing what true human life is like is almost as important for us as knowing what God is like, because we are human beings. God created us to be human beings, and he said it was good. We are now fallen. We're sinful. We've been broken and marred by sin, but we're still humans. And when Jesus saves us and redeems us, he, he makes us not angels or ghosts or something like that. He makes us redeemed, saved human beings. And in our future as believers, when God creates a new heavens and a new earth, guess what? We will be redeemed, glorified, resurrected human beings, bodies and all. So the fact is that God loves human beings. He created us uniquely to bear his image. But if that weren't enough to make us pro-human, to make us value ourselves and other human beings, we learn here that the word became flesh. God loves us enough and values us enough as human beings to become one of us, to take on human nature. And as one of us, to break the back of sin that, that keeps us from him. As we say in our communion, uh, that he, he lived the life we should have lived. And he died the death we should have died. So that now we can begin to live the life he designed us to live as human beings. I've many times actually heard our friend Greg Gansel, part of this church, reflect on the first verse of O Holy Night, sometimes in tears, in the way that it captures this important truth. It says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. In becoming a human being, Jesus showed us our worth, each and every one of us. And by the way, he, he, he was fully human, including suffering. He understands us. Because Jesus is fully human, not only do we understand what true humanity is like, but 
he also understands us in a way that's deeply personal because he has taken our nature upon himself. The word became flesh and nothing is the same. No wonder we find that the one solitary life broke into history. When that happened, it changed everything. Jesus is God. Jesus is human. And finally, third point, Jesus is with us. And the key word here is dwelling. Jesus didn't just become human in some abstract sense in a, in a book or in a theory. He actually showed up in a particular place in time in history, and he lived among actual historical people. I love the way the message renders this. It says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Because Jesus is God, we know what God is like. Because Jesus is human, we know what a true human life is like. And because Jesus is with us, we can live in relationship with God. This is incredible. But it gets even better when we uh, take a closer look at the language that John uses here. If I say, we wish you a Merry Christmas... We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. What immediately comes to your mind? Same to you, buddy. No. We all say, and a Happy New Year. Now, why? Why does that come to our minds? Well, because these are familiar words. They're ones that you've heard and sung for years and years. They've gone deep into your soul. They're part of how you think. And when you start to hear someone say these words... They resonate and connect and evoke all of these other associations. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, when John wrote this gospel account, he was addressing a number of Jewish believers like himself. Men and women who had read and heard the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures their whole lives. Some passages had become deeply ingrained in their souls. Now, I suggest that when John writes that the Word made his dwelling among us, and actually the rest of the, the verse has a, a number of associations too, but we don't have time to explore them. When he wrote that the Word made his dwelling among us, his readers immediately made connections to some of the most important passages in the Old Testament that talked about God himself dwelling among his people. Now let's briefly look at one of those passages that was read in the Old Testament reading for today. From Exodus 24 verses 15 through 18 and then 25 verses 8 and 9. Now here's the context. Se several months after the, uh, God had liberated the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai where he began to reveal to them what it meant for them to be his people. Now, just before this passage starts, God tells Moses to go up on Mount Sinai, where God is going to give him the Ten Commandments in two, two uh, uh, tablets. And it reads as follows. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. I'll just mention something about glory here. You'll note that 
uh, in John uh, 1.14, the word glory shows up. And it shows up several uh, places here in, in this passage that we're reading right now. It's actually an important part, and it's one of these associations um, that I can't really say much about. But just when you talk about the glory of the Lord, you're talking about his worth, his his, uh, majesty, his great value, okay? And sometimes it takes, it can take, it can be manifested in in physical terms like fire and, and cloud and smoke and so on. So, the, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And I won't read the rest of that; those verses in, in uh, chapter um, 24 there. Just focus on that. The Lord, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Now that word settled is a Hebrew verb that means to dwell. But it's a, it's a word that means to dwell that carries the idea of, quite often, of dwelling in a tent pitching a tent and settling in a tent, or as the Hebrews would say, a tabernacle. And so uh, this could be translated, the glory of the Lord tabernacled on Mount Sinai. Now let's go to the, the verses 8 and 9 of chapter 25, where God says to Moses, okay, when, when this is all over, he's given them some instructions he says, then have the Israelites make a sanctuary or a holy place for me, and I will dwell among them. Now that word dwell here is the same verb. I will pitch my tent among them. I will tabernacle among them. And then he goes on to say, make this tabernacle or tent. Now that's the noun of the verb that we've just been talking about. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God is promising to dwell with his people, to have a relationship with his people, to to camp out with his people, so to speak. That's his heart. And that's really what the Old Testament tabernacle is for. It's a place. It's a tent. And they would keep it in the exact geographic center of the camp, wherever they were, And they understood that God was choosing to dwell in a special way, uh, in in a special focused way there. Now, they they understood that God was not a human being with a body or he wasn't a physical object or anything like that. They didn't, he didn't have to, he didn't need a tent to live in. The idea was that this was representing his presence and it was to be in the very center of his people in in a holy tent. And then later, when they move into the the promised land, they build a temple, and that played the same sort of function. And then, when their rebellion got so bad, their sin, they became alienated from God. The temple was destroyed. They went into exile. But God would speak through the prophets in these later centuries and promise that a time is coming when, once again, God will dwell among his people. And not just Israel this time but all peoples, all people, his people from all nations. Now, do you hear the resonances here? If we go back to John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And it's no accident that when John says the word made his dwelling among us, he uses the Greek counterpart term to that Hebrew term we were talking about. The Greek word for dwelling, that means tent or tabernacle. And 
it's it's fairly often translated as the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So you see that John is telling us that the prophecies have come true, the long-awaited time for God to come again and dwell among his people, not just Israel, but all people, is now here. All people can live in relationship with God. Emmanuel has come to thee, O Israel. God is with us in Jesus. Now you might think, well, sure, that was great for John and those other guys at that time because Jesus was bodily with them. But what good is that to us? Jesus is gone bodily. Now that's over. Do you ever, you ever think, man, wouldn't it be great to live in the first century, to, to be in the band of brothers and sisters that hung out with Jesus God with us, God with us, walking around, God having dinner with us, God teaching us directly, God living in, in, in relationship with us. Wow, that, that would be so great. And I think it would be great. But there's good news. A few chapters later in John's account, at the end of Jesus' ministry, Jesus tells his disciples that he's leaving them to go to be with the Father. And he says, it's actually, you're going to be better off when I do that. Why? Because Jesus, in his physical body, is only among them. He's limited in space and time. But now, because Jesus is going to be with the Father, he, can, he says, I can send the Holy Spirit, who is sometimes called the Spirit of Christ, who is not limited in space and time. And he will indwell each one of them. So that's really the complete fulfillment of these ancient promises and yearnings of God dwelling among his people. At one point, he dwelt among a particular group in a particular location. In Jesus, God dwelt in the flesh as a human being, among other human beings. But now Jesus is able to dwell through the Holy Spirit, in all believers, at all times, in all places. Most truly now, Jesus is God with us, and now in us, a personal relationship. So why is Jesus so significant? He's God. So we know what God is like. He's human. The only perfect, complete human, so we know what it means to be truly human. And because he died and rose again as a human to pay the penalty for our sin, he opened the door for us to live in relationship with God so that he can truly dwell in us. Now, by way of application, I'd like to suggest um, one or two thoughts related to each of these three points that I've made. First of all, Jesus is God. How does that affect the way you think of God? Maybe you struggle with some things that you think might be true of God or you've heard are true of God, but you don't know. Well, if Jesus is God, then God is like Jesus. Take a look at him. Do you wonder if God is good? Look at Jesus. Does God love you? 
Look at Jesus. Do you wonder if God has forgiven you or will forgive you? Look at Jesus and what he did on the cross. And Jesus is human. Do you value your humanity, including your body, as much as Jesus does? Do you value your very human life, your work, your relationships, your personality, as much as Jesus does? Does your soul feel its worth? If not, ask Jesus to help you see yourself as he does. Then finally, Jesus is with us. You know, it's really a wonderful thing that he is the most influential person who who ever lived as a historical figure. But far more important than that to us as, as individuals is the fact that we can actually know him because of who he is and what he's done. We can have a relationship with him. He will dwell in us by the Holy Spirit. He's done everything on his end to make that possible. Verses 11 and 12 of this passage, John identifies two responses to Jesus and all he represents. Some reject him, he says, and some receive him. Verse 12 says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that's our part, to receive him, to believe in his name. That is to trust that he is, in fact, all of these things. And he has done all of these things. If you have never received Jesus, if you have never placed your trust in him, to be all that we have talked about this morning, then this would be a wonderful time to do it. As you close the year of 2019 and begin a new year, you could begin the new year as a new person. Amen.